very excited about this opportunity to just start down a road of trying to serve in evangelism, to love people in our community for Christ in just a small, tangible way, and pray that it opens the gospel and a door for the proclaiming of the gospel. Good morning, greetings, salutations. My name is uh, Ryan Oschlager, lead pastor here at Sunrise. Having uh, watched this introduction to servant evangelism <clears throat> about doing small things with great love, I hopped on the uh, official, sort of official servant evangelism website where I immediately saw an article written by that pastor, Pastor Steve Sogren. And the article was entitled, Words of Love That Follow Deeds of Love. Words of love that follow deeds of love. And he went on to explain that it's far easier in today's world to get people on board with the S of servant evangelism. Whereas with the E of servant evangelism, he admitted it remains one of his church's greatest challenges. Get people on board with the E part of servant evangelism. And that kind of reminds me a bit of what we discussed last week. Segway. Last week from Malachi 2, we talked about priests. And that just as Jesus is our high priest interceding between us and God, so Jesus calls us priests. And he can use us as a go-between so that people might have access to him. I shared a story last week regarding a man who basically practiced what you saw up on that screen. Servant evangelism. A man who practiced servant evangelism toward a man who was cynical about the Christian faith. And he shared his faith in deed, but not in word. See, the problem was that though this man was a servant, he wasn't a servant evangelist. So when he eventually moved away from that city, the cynical man was impressed by the man, but not by Jesus. That makes sense? A number of you actually gave me some, uh, some feedback, some comments, shared some stories about that last week, that story, which was, was pretty cool. So this morning, we're going to open our Bibles, continue to talk about priests on a more practical level. Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, <clears throat> pardon me, verses 1 through 9. This passage this morning confirms the point of this story, as well as Pastor Sogren's article which is being a servant and an evangelist, right? Words are supposed to be present when we live our lives as priests for Jesus. So let's read with me Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. And we're going to focus on verses 6 through 9 this morning, having focused on verse 1 through 5 last week. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay them to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand as the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him, remember Levi was a family of priests, his descendants became priests. My covenant with him was one of life and of peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. 
true instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And turned many from iniquity, from sin, from rebellion. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble from your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. And as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. As we continue our series in the book of Malachi, we pray, Lord, that you would help equip us to not be just servants, but servant evangelists, Lord, called as priests to speak words that might help people see that they can have a direct relationship with God. Help us, please, with that this morning by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in these verses, while a uh, priestly life is mentioned, for instance, in verse 6, he walked with God, right? In peace and uprightness. While that is mentioned, the emphasis, hopefully as you can see here in verses 6 through 9, is on speaking truth. Speaking truth. So, priest... The priest is a speaking role. Now in this kingdom of priests, this kingdom of priests, as Revelation calls us actually twice, there are no merely behind-the-scenes desk jobs. Alright, or you can't audition for simply silent parts as a priest. Instead, being God's priest is a speaking role. It involves a speaking role. Now, there are three major objections, I think, to this, uh, I considered this week, to taking on a speaking role as Christians. As I further kind of got into this passage and, and thought about it and researched, etc., I realized it touches on each of these three objections. All right, this passage touches on each of these three objections that we have to wanting to speak as Christians. So... Let's do three. Give me all three of these. Here we go. Objection number one to speaking as a Christian about your faith is this. It's not my thing. It's not my thing. Also known as, isn't this why we hired a pastor? <laughs> Come on. It's your job. Do it. Right? We, don't, we don't pay you to sit around all day and just pray. I understand that, and I'm sympathetic to this objection. I'll explain why more in a moment. But first, let's see what God's Word says on the matter. First of all, Malachi 2.7. As we look at that, there's an emphasis on what? My messenger. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. People should seek instruction from his mouth. He is the messenger for the Lord of hosts. Now, Jesus lets his followers in... He lets them know about their priestly role as messengers at a unique time in his ministry. He's just begun making his journey towards Jerusalem. In fact, in Luke 9, it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem. And it was a journey from which, of course, he would not return. As recorded in Luke 10, he chooses this time to send out not just the 12 who are closest to him, 
But 72 people, 72, the majority likely of those following him at this point. 72. It's a lot of people, right, to go on your first, like, you know, leadership mission. He sends them with a message. And as his representatives, another insight to them being priests, he says in Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me. In other words, they were sent as Jesus' representatives, the go-between between people and Jesus. All right, so why 72? Did it seem like a good amount? In 72, it's, it's usually the par in golf. Seems like a good number, right? Uh, actual number of people who were there was it 72. Well, 72 is a reference to what is known as the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. There we find a list of all the nations that descend from the sons of Noah after the flood, right? Humanity starting all over again. And 72 people are sent out as, as sort of nations that spread out. 72 in all. Any Jew, any contemporary Jew to Jesus would have heard 72 and thought, oh, he's saying all the nations, everyone in the earth. That is the message of 72. What's my point? Well, not my point, but Jesus' point. Choosing the 72 is Jesus' way of saying, believers from every nation are called to bring my message, to be my messengers. No one is excluded. Right? Not all of these 72 people were gifted with gab, right? The ability to speak, to relate to people, small talk, all of these things. Certainly, they didn't. A lot of them were, you know, kind of hard-working, blue-collar fishermen who probably grunted a lot, right? <laughs> I like grunting, so it's okay to do that. Even still, all of them called to bring this message that Jesus describes in Luke 10. You can look at that later. Let's look at a few more verses about this. 1 Peter 3.15. Peter tells us this, that in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, we're always called to be ready with an answer. Speaking it. Matthew 20, 19-20, the Great Commission. Where we're told, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. Not just seeing, seeing people come to faith in Jesus, but teaching people how to then grow in obedience. Right? Often we focus on the former, but we leave out the end of that sentence. Right? Teaching them to obey everything. Right? Helping them grow in Christ. Right? Even the, even the, the kitty song we sang earlier. That was a sweet song, huh? Great song, right? But we, we left out the, the, the second part of, of that sentence that Jesus utters. All right, now go and teach them. Speak truth in their lives. Help them grow. I'm not just talking about evangelism either. I'm talking about speaking truth into brothers and sisters' lives. Right? For their good. Because we love them. But even still, I'm sympathetic. I am sympathetic to my brothers and sisters for whom speaking does not come naturally. Right? It's not their spiritual gift. 
And when you trust your life to Christ, God the Holy Spirit enters you and brings some housewarming gifts along with them. Alright, which is a beautiful thing. God gives these spiritual gifts to help empower you to serve people in your church specifically and then beyond. Now some include teaching, preaching, evangelism, exhortation, prophecy. All these gifts which have speaking as their focus. Right? That's just some of these gifts. Now many of you would say, and those things ain't my gift. Now, you probably use better grammar than that, but you know what I'm saying, right? These things are not my gift. So let's step back a little bit to understand spiritual gifts and talents. Spiritual gifts are just all the things that we are called to do in the Christian life, just multiplied exponentially. In other words, spiritual gifting is not just a matter of ability or calling, but of degree. Let me give you an example. Hospitality. The Bible says all people are called to show hospitality, to help other people feel comfortable. Some people just should be given more opportunities and put in situations where they can exercise it more because they are divinely good at it to a greater degree. Right? They're divinely skilled at it to a greater degree. So we're all called to do it, but spiritual gift is like this dynamite that's put in you to, to multiply it to a greater degree. Let me give you an example of why this matters then. Let's just imagine, for example, uh, a situation. I'll use my marriage to Katie. We're going to imagine this for a moment. Nine years ago, we've just completed our first year of wedded bliss. And uh, let's just say she's asking me to step up my service to help more around the house. All right. Now, a service or helps is a spiritual gift. Have you read this before? It's in, in these lists, 1 Corinthians 12, you can read in uh, Ephesians 4 and, and, and Romans 12 about spiritual gifts. All right? That's one of them. Now let's just say I tell her, I'm not very gifted in the area of service or help, so you should probably lower the ceiling on those expectations. All right? Now remember, this is just hypothetical. All right? This did not necessarily happen. It may have, it may have not. All right? So just, you can't say it has. I don't repeat this. Now, now it's true on, on spiritual gifts assessments. If you've ever taken one of these, you've been a Christian for a while, you take these sometimes tests. And, and I scored uh, usually between a zero and one on service or helps. All right, not very high. So um, is this a valid reason for her to expect less of me? Less of my service? What do you think? Is it a valid reason? No, yes, I heard a yes. I will take that and use it later. Thank you. I was hoping one person might say yes. I'm not going to use that in an argument. Oh, boy. That would end poorly for me. Uh, no, of course not. It's not a valid reason. It's not a valid reason. It just means that it's not going to come naturally to me. right? Or in this case, spiritually to me. My best way of serving is through other means. My, my, God willing, my mind, my mouth, hopefully my ears. In other words, the facial area. <laughs> Except for my actual face. But not good with the hands, shoulders, knees, and toes, right? Not my strong suit. Similarly, though, let me, let me reverse this. Let me boomerang this question back at you. Is your lack of giftedness in teaching 
and evangelism and communication a valid reason for God to expect less from you? Is it? Objection number two. Faith is fine. Faith is fine, but keep it to yourself. People who don't believe in Jesus, sometimes we as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, believe this as well. Like, yeah, I kind of keep it to myself. This is an extremely hot-button insistitive kind of issue, isn't it? Should people of one faith try to convert those of another? But you've got to wonder, is faith kept to oneself really faith at all? Is it? When we talk about sharing our faith, we talk about it in terms of the gospel. Right? Sharing the gospel. The gospel going forth. We talk about evangelism, the evangelion in Greek, proclaiming the gospel, literally. What is the gospel? All right. It's the good news. In the Bible, the good news is that God has come in the flesh to rescue sinners from the life of rebellion that leads to death to a full and everlasting life that begins on the day you trust Christ. But if you think the gospel is merely a religious word, well, you're wrong. What I love about God and the Bible is he used so many things we, we don't know about because you got to get into the background and stuff. That's why I paid all that money to go to seminary, whatever. But you, 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 you learn some things where God really was relating to the culture at the time through the words he used. For instance, the gospel. The gospel in the Greco-Roman world was news and of objective, history-changing event that altered everyone's life situation. So we have, for instance, a document that starts like this. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Like, what? Never heard of that gospel. Sounds fake. No. He, he was declaring that he had ascended to the throne. And so it was sent out. It was sent out everywhere. All these heralds would declare it. Historical, objective, life-altering news. It alters everyone's life situation. You couldn't say, well, that's your governor. That's your emperor. Excuse me. But not mine. Right? No. He was everyone's emperor. He had to deal with it. Right? This changed your life. The most famous example of this is in 490 B.C. at the Battle of Marathon between the Greek Athenians and the Persians. Here's a little history for you today. The Persians were invading Greece. And the Athenians, the Greeks, went out on the plains of Marathon to begin defending their city. Now everyone back home in Athens knew that once the Persian army broke through, they would loot in the city. They would riot, cause looting, pillaging, all these sorts of things in the city. That would be the logical next step of their victory. And everyone thought the Persians would win. It was like the, a Brazilian all-star soccer team, like the greatest Brazilian soccer players of all time coming together as one at the peak of their careers and playing together. Everyone would know, this is, you know, they're going to dominate. But to everyone's surprise, Athens defeats Persia. And immediately after they won, they realized they needed to communicate the gospel. And that's what they did. And that's what we have history of. They need to get back, lest their people panic in the streets and begin to evacuate. 
This news would change people's evacuation plans, everyone's outlook, indeed everyone's life. So they sent a single runner back to the city to communicate this history-changing news, the gospel. And you know how long this guy ran, right? About 22 and a half miles. This is where we get our modern marathon. In other words, the first marathon was for the gospel. Right? What a great use of the marathon, right? For those of us who run them here, just for staying in shape, right? For the gospel. History-changing news. <laughs> the biblical authors use this word, the gospel, because they believe this news about Jesus is objective, history-changing to the point where it will alter people's life situation. So, here's my point. When we say, it's okay to believe, or someone says, it's okay to believe, just keep it to yourself. What they're really saying is, just lessen your belief. Because we're talking about history-changing, objective, life-altering news. But don't tell anyone. By the way, what a radically unloving thing to do for someone. To not tell them. Even if they scowl at you, maybe even, even yell at you, I don't know. But to not tell them when you have the key to eternal life. What a radically unloving thing to do. It reminds me a little bit, uh, I, thought, I just thought about this. Um, anyone watch the show Seinfeld? Have you ever seen the show Seinfeld? There's an episode, they don't show it much, probably because it has to do with Christianity. They don't show it much in syndication. But Elaine, one of the main characters in Seinfeld, her boyfriend... Uh, David, Put David Putty uh, you know him, you know his character you know the guy because he talks a lot like this it's like yeah, yeah I don't care just stop talking to me he talks like this, alright, you've seen him in various movies and shows and various things, I, lo I love the guy anyway, she discovers one day a fish, a Christian fish on his bumper sticker and that his radio is pre-programmed to Christian stations and she gets mad at him she's like why didn't you tell me, are you a Christian? he's like yeah, yeah so why didn't you tell me? It's not my problem. <laughs> that's what he says. He says, but I could be going to hell. Don't you care? Like, yeah, that's not my deal. It's your deal. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> right so you have seen this episode. But that's, that's what's going on. That's true though, isn't it? That's what we're doing. If we don't communicate this to people... I've been building a relationship with a guy who doesn't yet trust Christ. I won't, I won't want to say too much about him because I've begun to realize this is a small island. And I really care about this guy, so I want to keep building a relationship and continue to hopefully share Christ with him. Anyway, he opened up a bit to me this past Wednesday about religion. He said, you know, I'm just not very religious. I've known that. But uh, he went on to talk about the astrophysicist Carl Sagan and his video series, The Cosmos. And how this, this video series basically replaced his Jehovah's Witness uh, Sunday school videos he grew up watching. Was saying He used to grow up to these videos and watch them and then he'd fall asleep to them. And then he started to do the same thing, he said, with science. And these videos about the cosmos. Had a similar effect. And then he ended by telling me, or, or basically saying to me, whatever makes you happy, right? Boy, you've heard that question before, right? It's really not a question. It's more of a statement. Whatever makes you happy, right? We, 
Now there's a number of directions I could go with this. So I'm going to put a few up here on, on the screen. Well, you could say, are you happy? It's kind of the Dr. Phil method, right? Is that working out for you? Right? There's the eternal happiness response. Well, you know, I guess I could have said, I guess I think about happiness beyond death also. And I don't know if you think about that, too. This is something like that. Or, or the truth response. Yeah, but I also wonder about what is true, you know? Am I building everything around something that maybe keep me happy temporarily, but it's not true? Or a fourth response, which is leave it, kind of nod my head, mm-hmm, and just never return to this sensitive subject again. But how I respond says a lot, and I mean a lot, about if the gospel is really the gospel, do I really believe it's the gospel? Is it history changing? And do I believe it? Alright, last objection. A lot of objection to speaking. Having a speaking role as a Christian, as a priest. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. What most stuck out when reading these verses in Malachi was the importance God placed on getting it right. Right? And the message and the teaching. Read with me Malachi 2. Verse 6. True instruction. No wrong on his lips, on a priest's lips. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. People should seek instruction from his mouth. Verse 9, you should show no partiality in your instructions. Basically, he's condemning the priest then for showing partiality. They would say, oh, we'll talk about the good things about the faith, but not the hard things. Which is what they were doing when they were accepting these flawed sacrifices. I won't get into that though right now. But, but the importance here is getting it right. And getting it right. And of course, getting it right is simultaneously what often paralyzes us from saying anything at all. Right? We're like, ah! Some of us, we're paralyzed. We just don't want to say the wrong thing. And it's, a, it's out of us sometimes a healthy fear of God. You, you really want to do the right thing and say the right thing. So that's why I'm scrapping a lot of stuff I prepared for this morning. I was going to talk about identifying questions that people were really asking. Thought about how to communicate with clarity and passion. Thought about communicating truth in terms that make sense to everyday people. All of these things are important in sharing the gospel and evangelism. There's lots of great stuff written on it. Another sermon, another time. But likely when we talk about all these things, it overwhelms us. So when we get to the point where we should be saying something to somebody, we're kind of overwhelmed. Like, what did he say? What should I be thinking about? Let's make it simple this morning. Because I take comfort in the fact that the Apostle Paul was scared. The dude whom God used to spark Christianity across the known world in the first century and wrote most of the New Testament was frightened and didn't prepare himself, apparently, to share everything. At least not with the church of Corinth. Let's read 1 Corinthians 2, 2-5. Where Paul says this, I resolve to know nothing while I was with you, with you Corinthians, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, on God's power. Now this is great. God's going to show up. 
Especially when we rely on him. So, so Paul doesn't rely on his knowledge, but only on the Spirit, right? He doesn't worry about preparation at all so that faith wouldn't come from anything he says, right? Wrong! <laughs> no, it's not what he says. Look closely. Rather, when anxious, when feeling especially weak, when trembling at the thought of speaking up, yes, he relies on the Spirit, but he also narrows his focus to two things. Jesus Christ and His cross. I resolve to know nothing but that. So if you don't know what to say, we find here probably the best strategy to get in the know. Get to know Jesus and His cross. So let's just take a few minutes to do that this morning before we close. Jesus Christ. Just a couple things, and there's a lot. And of course, my larger encouragement this, this year would be get to know Jesus and the cross and the implications of the cross. But let's just take a moment. Jesus Christ, number one, He is God. Get to know this so that when people come to you and you have an opportunity to be a bridge between others and God, you can talk about the fact that He is God. John 8, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he makes this profound statement for which they want to stone Jesus, where he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Why is it so important? Jesus was saying, he is, he, he is, he is the I am. He is Yahweh, the name for God in the Old Testament. He is Yahweh in the flesh. That's why you see throughout John, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, I am the vine, I am the bread of life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Because He is the I Am. He is God. He demonstrates power throughout His ministry that eventually culminates in His resurrection from the dead. And in showing this power, His primary concern, shown in Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke 5, is to demonstrate that He had the authority to forgive. He is God. He's also the Lamb of God. It's not enough that Jesus just has power because it's not as if God the Father say, oh, Jesus, do whatever you want. Just zap, right? And let people go to eternal life. Because God is a just God. Right? If He didn't make someone pay for our rebellion, then He wouldn't be just and He would cease to be perfect. God requires a perfect life to give us life. And Jesus lived the perfect life. Then gave it. Jesus Christ crucified. Let's talk about the cross briefly. Can't get too deeply into this this morning, unfortunately. But three major things achieved through the cross. Jesus, our substitute. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember Jesus saying this on the cross. He utters this words because on the cross, Jesus substitutes in. He subs in for us. To take on a just punishment. The just punishment that God shows towards the rebellion of the whole world. Some folks we talk to have been used and abused their whole lives. They've been the subject of punishment through being the butt of jokes, the target of criticism, right? Or the object of even worse abuse. So in sharing the gospel, some folks don't need to be reminded of the reality of the present or future punishment because they know it all too well. But we can share with them of the one who is willing to take on that punishment forever. The cross. 
Jesus became our reconciliation. In the Old Testament temple worship, a curtain separated the perfect, spotless presence of God from the imperfect, spotted people of God. And when Jesus died, three of the gospel writers tell us that curtain was torn. We had access to God. So the, for the person who feels the weight of their imperfection, they feel it heavily in their lives. Jesus' death reconciles a person to God. I'm going to skip the next one. It's adoption. Well, I'll say it. 2A, adoption for the person who senses distance between themselves or their family. Like the guy I talked about earlier in my story. Who doesn't really have a family. Because of Jesus' death, you have the opportunity to be adopted into a forever family of God the Father. All through the cross. Finally, through the cross, Jesus is our best resume. Through Jesus' death, God not only forgives us, but He gives us Christ's righteousness. He gives us this credit of Christ's righteousness. It's like a big old bank account He transfers to us. For the person, then, who is confident in their own righteousness, who's confident in their own resume before God, that they've been a pretty good person, you can ask them, you know, it's kind of like this. When God asks you why He should let you into heaven, with which do you feel more secure? Your resume or Jesus' resume? Because you're going to face that one day. These are ways we can use the cross and know the cross and bring it in front of people to show them the hope they can have in Christ. I remember hearing a fellow seminarian of mine at Trinity in Chicago sharing this story once. He had discovered that a Promise Keepers convention was coming to Soldier Field, the big football stadium in Chicago. Promise Keepers was this ministry uh, for men that encouraged men to be uh, better Christians, fathers, husbands. He said a group of folks took a commuter train downtown. And they caught a taxi cab at the stadium. And they were running late. But they still hoped to grab a good seat. The traffic was extremely heavy. And it got worse the closer they got to the stadium. Slowed to a crawl. We weren't going to get a good seat, he said. So a couple of folks started talking about hopping from the cab to get out of the cab and running the rest of the way to the stadium. Because they were kind of close enough to do that. Which sounded good to most of us, he said. But Michael spoke against the plan. He was more concerned about the cabbie. He explained, hey guys, if we get out at this point, the driver will be stuck in traffic and he won't be able to fill up his taxi again. He'd be losing money. After this, Michael spoke with the taxi driver. He turned his attention to him. And he went on to share about the conference they were going to. And then he shared the good news about Jesus Christ and his cross. The man who was sharing this story went on to say, I, you know, I don't know if the man was affected by this message. But I know that Michael's thoughtful act gave him a hearing with this man. And rather than leaving him with silence or getting out of the cab with simply a good deed, he stepped through that silence. And boldly spoke a message. He didn't leave them just with humanity. He didn't leave them thinking about, well, people are good. He stepped through the silence to know and talk about Jesus and Him crucified. Friends, this, this coming Saturday, 
through our servant evangelism cookout, we have an opportunity to be priests, interceding between Jesus and people, just like this man in the taxi, who loved his neighbor by taking an opportunity to tangibly show him that love, and he loved him by living out his speaking role, speaking objective, history-changing news, Jesus Christ and his cross. Let's pray. Lord God, for many of us, in some way, shape, or form, this is a message we've heard before from your word, from sermons, from people, from books. Just from that knowing conscience, maybe the Holy Spirit reminding us about the importance of evangelism. Lord, the, the stark reality is we have all these objections. And I pray those have been answered this morning through your word, but we need to step out. We need to love people tangibly, but then step through the silence to fulfill our role as priests. We have this role that Jesus has given us, a privilege to be used by Him and to go between, between people and Him. So give us the boldness, give us the courage, give us the trust in this history-changing news that can alter people's lives. May we love people enough to share it with them. In Jesus' name, amen.